Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes. Ever returning on its course. All the streams, they flow into the sea, yet then the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear, it's never full of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, the teacher was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore the wisdom, all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and much knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of the madness and folly, but I learned that this, too, is chasing after the wind. For with, much, with wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So a good edifying passage for you this morning. God bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Meaningless, meaningless. Ecclesiastes, not exactly the book you probably run to when you're feeling down. It's not exactly the scriptures you may run to when you're having a rough week. You probably run to some favorite passage in the Gospels or some uplifting passage in Philippians or maybe a psalm. But Ecclesiastes is not the one we often run to, and yet it is there in the scriptures as God's word to us to teach us. Ecclesiastes wasn't the uh, next book uh, we were actually planning, or I was actually planning to preach in uh, this time of the year, February. Pastor Brian and I had talked about a number of things. We laid out um, a different series we were going to start today. But then I was reading one morning in my devotional time and I was reading something and had a quote from Ecclesiastes and I, and I read it and I was reading it and I read it over and I thought, man, that, that sounds a lot like life today and maybe we should do something out of Ecclesiastes for February. And I thought, nah, we already got it laid out. We know where we're going. 
And then a couple minutes later, literally a couple minutes later, an email comes in from Pastor Brian who said, hey, I was reading in Ecclesiastes this morning and I thought, maybe, you think maybe we should do a sermon series out of Ecclesiastes? And I thought, well, I do now. Because if God has us both reading Ecclesiastes on the same day and we weren't in a Bible reading plan, God, I think, wants us to hear something from this book. It's one that, like I said, it isn't one that I would show. It's not one I've heard a lot of sermon series preached out of. But it is the Word of God. And I think what you'll find as we walk through it over these next couple months is that Ecclesiastes has a lot to say and resonates very closely with the world that you and I find ourselves living in, with the mindset and the worldview that we find ourselves living in. Ecclesiastes, the name alone, is a little bit, uh, raises questions. It's a funny word. It's not a word that we use often in our conversation. You may wonder where it comes from. If you've heard anything like it, uh, perhaps you were in a church that used the word ecclesiastical or had an ecclesiastical structure, which just means the church structure. It's a New Testament Greek word for church. It's a translation, of course, Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament book, so it was originally written in Hebrew. And so it's a translation of a Hebrew word that essentially means preacher or teacher, uh, the the one who would lead the gathering. Um, And so that's basically where they get the name of the book. Throughout history, many people have taken that Solomon probably wrote it, but it's uh, called into some question because he never outright identifies himself. He does say he was a king of Israel, son of David, but never says that it's Solomon that wrote it, contrary to Proverbs where he names himself, contrary to Song of Solomon where he names himself. So I think it's as good a guess as any that Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have written it, but it doesn't say outright. So throughout the series, if I'm speaking or Pastor Brian's speaking, you may hear us refer to the author as the teacher or the preacher, which is the name of the book, or sometimes Solomon. Um, But we can't know for sure at this point who is the writer of the book. But what we do know for sure is that it's God's word to us and he wants to speak a message to us through it. And so we want to hear what God has to say to us. Let me start off this message this morning with a riddle or a little bit of something to get your minds thinking. The writer of Ecclesiastes often uses word phrases or riddles or poetry or poems to kind of bring across his message and bring across what he's trying to say. So as I'm speaking during this introductory time, the next few minutes, let me ask you to think about this. These four images, the goldfish in a bowl, the hamster on a wheel, the jigsaw puzzle on a table, and the corn maze. What do they all have in common? What do these four images, these four objects have in common? You can think about that as a, for a few moments while I just share a little bit more about this, uh, this book and where we're going. His aim in this book, the reason we've titled the series Life Under the Sun, you've heard the phrase two or three times even in this chapter. It's actually used almost 30 times throughout this entire book. It's only 12 chapters long, but almost 30 times, 27 verses, you'll hear the phrase under the sun, life under the sun. And the author's, the teacher's um, goal is to consider life under the sun. What does this life on earth under the sun entail? And it's filled with, if you have never read it, it's filled with raw emotion and honesty 
in a way that if you haven't read this book, you might be surprised to even find those words in the Bible, how raw and honest he is about his thoughts. There are thoughts that rarely pass the lips of the religious person, and if they do, they're considered, if they're considered at all, it's in the privacy of their own mind and heart, and then perhaps for only a few fleeting moments. But the author of Ecclesiastes brings them out into the open. These are the thoughts that are often held by many people today. They are the thoughts that are sometimes voiced openly, but most often held in the recess of people's thoughts as the logical conclusion of a worldview built on the fact that everything has come about through time, chance, and coincidence. Many in our world will hold the view that everything you see around you, everything you touch, everything that is, has come about through a series of, a, over a long period of time, through a series of chance and coincidence and happenstance. And if you follow that view out to its logical conclusion that the only thing that is, is what you can see, the only thing that is, is life under the sun, then you get the book of Ecclesiastes. Then you get the argument that the teacher, the preacher is making in this book. That if life under the sun is all there is, then it's meaningless. If life under the sun, if all, only what we see is all there is, then it's meaningless. And he makes this argument in this chapter. We're going to look at that in a minute. But people in our day have embraced this. You may not always hear it. Certainly not in your daily conversation. Maybe not on the daily news story. But in certain coffee houses where poems are read, maybe darker than other poems, you start to hear this view of life that appears that if this is all there is, it's meaningless. Certain songs, certain bands that delve into those darker places come to this place and they look around and they say, if this is all there is, it's what we've been taught, we have been taught is true, then there's no purpose, then there's no meaning to any of it. Certain university classrooms, perhaps in a philosophy paper, you'll find this type of thinking from certain professors, men like Richard Dawkins in his book, River Out of Eden, who said this, human existence is neither good nor evil neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose, could very easily fit in the book of Ecclesiastes. Stephen Hawking said that we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. And then this is interesting, and he says, but we can understand the universe. Pretty advanced breed of monkeys that we can understand the universe. There's a bit of a disequilibrium there, right? We, we want to believe there's meaning and purpose and understanding, and yet if you follow out these arguments to the logical conclusion, there can't possibly be. And so we live in a world that is skeptical of the things around them, skeptical of truth and trying to hold this view that things have come about, that there is no creator, that there is nothing outside of it, that it is only life under the sun. And to this world, the book of Ecclesiastes comes under the inspiration of God's Spirit and says, if this is all there is, it's life under the sun, then it's meaningless. 
And the writer makes his argument in chapter 1 and he lays out three points to argue for the fact that life is meaningless. And his first point is this. He said, life is meaningless and his first evidence for it is because life is just a repetitive cycle with only the illusion of progress. Life is simply, if you look around and you look around you and you look what you can see, it's just a repetitive cycle with simply the illusion of progress. And that's the answer to my riddle of the four pictures. What do these four pictures all have in common? They all have the illusion of progress. The fish in the bowl, I don't know what fish think, what goes on in their tiny fish brain. I have no idea. But all I can imagine is them going around that tank, oh, look a tree, look a tree, look a tree, look a tree. <laughs> you know, it is the illusion of progress. They're just swimming around that bowl. Or the hamster on the wheel, thinking he's getting somewhere, gets on that wheel every day. And you just watch him, you know. I hate about hamsters is the nocturnal. So you hear that thing squeaking at night as they go around their little wheel, right? And we think, stupid fish, stupid hamster. But then we get the bottom two images. And we got the maze and the puzzle. How many like jigsaw puzzles? I like jigsaw puzzles when they're about three quarters of the way finished. That's my favorite jigsaw puzzle. My son Isaac and, and Wendy, they do jigsaw puzzles. I like to jump in in the home stretch, help to bring things home. I'll help with the edges. When it's about three quarters of the way done, that's my wheelhouse. I can jump in there and be of some help. The thing about jigsaw puzzles, you know, we do them. We put so much time and effort into them. But what have you accomplished at the end of it? You have recreated the image on the front of the box that you had already. You have simply put back together something that somebody, it was already together and somebody cut apart. The illusion of progress. The corn maze, right? You can spend hours in this corn. Yay, I got to the end. What have you accomplished? We have the illusion of progress. But it's not just corn mazes and jigsaw puzzles, is it? If we're honest with ourselves and we carry out these worldviews to their logical conclusion, then life under the sun is jigsaw puzzles and corn mazes. It's meaningless. Life under the sun, as you live, you die, and that's it. It's meaningless. The author of Ecclesiastes says it's the illusion of progress. He gives these illustrations. He says the sun rises and sets and hurries back to where it rises. Let me just give a short disclaimer about that because some people who may be, uh, you know, maybe considering the Christian faith, they look at that and they say, see, the Bible's full of lies. We all know the sun doesn't rise and set. You know, the sun stays stationary and the earth rotates and, and it's only the, you know, we, the sun doesn't actually move. And so if it says that in the Bible, then the Bible's full of lies. And I would say also, then your weatherman is as well, which may be more true than not. But you watch the weather tonight and he's going to say sunset is at, sunrise is at. Why? Because that's what it looks like. That's what we see. That's what's being described. And so the Bible does that in places as well. So, all right, 
close parentheses, back to the text. The wind blows from the south and turns to the north and goes around. It goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they return again. He's saying, look, if you were on this earth for a single day and you observe these things, it would look like something is happening. If you had one day on this earth and you were just dropped there and you saw all of a sudden it was dark and cold and this amazing ball of light rises up in the east and all of a sudden it is light and warm and it goes up and you would think that is incredible and then it sets at night and you, your breath would be taken away. But then the next day you're like, wow, this is great. But then the next day you're like, wow. And the next day you're like, oh, here comes the sun again. And by the next day, you're hitting the snooze and saying, please don't come up so soon. It's just again and again and again. And he says, look, it's the illusion of progress. It just happens again and again. He says, the same with the wind. The wind blows and it looks like it's accomplishing something. Maybe some things get blown over and maybe something, maybe it looks like something's happening. But the truth is, it's just the wind blowing. It blows from one direction to the other and then it reverses course. It doesn't really accomplish anything. It's an illusion of progress. And he says the same thing with the sea. The river. He's writing in Israel at the time. And so it would be the Jordan River. And he says, you know, the Jordan River constantly is flowing. And if you've ever been to one of those rivers that's just running and constantly running, or if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, I remember going to Niagara Falls and standing over those falls. And the thought in my head was, how can this possibly keep going? It has to run out sometime. Right? And that's what the writers say. They say, look, you stand beside a river and it's just flowing by, flowing by. And you think it is water going from one place to another, like water going from a glass to a bucket. But when you stand there, it just keeps going. And the Sea of Galilee is never emptied from the north and the Dead Sea is never filled in the south and the River Jordan keeps on flowing. The illusion of progress. Looks like something's happening. Looks like water is moving from one location to another. And in a sense it is, but in a sense it's not. It just keeps going over and over and over again. And gives us the illusion of progress. And like a goldfish in a bowl or a hamster on a wheel. He says, if life under the sun, you think you're making progress. You think you're gaining something. You think you're making something. You think you're building something. But if it's only life under the sun... You have gained nothing. It's just the illusion of progress. The second thing he says is perhaps life under the sun. You say, well, I can find something new. You know, maybe something new will give me meaning and will give me purpose. And this is where he gives his famous expression, there's nothing new under the sun. He says it like this, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It's here already long ago was here before our time. You ever gone to a beautiful place in nature like the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon or uh, maybe Yellowstone National Park or you've been to these incredible places of beauty and creation and you just, you're standing there and it's your first time there and you're taking in this incredible vista and thinking that, you know, this is something new. You have discovered it and then you look down and find an empty soda can at your feet piece of garbage and you realize you're not the first one here. You have not discovered anything new. You have not discovered anything new. 
Even if you go to space these days, one of the problems to having space is all the trash and junk floating around that because we've put up there. You can't even go there and think you feel found something new. You'll find somebody's empty soda can up there. He says, nothing new. You think you're discovering something new. You think you're discovering something. You know, it's like when you go on vacation and you come back and you tell someone, oh, you, I've been to this incredible place and I had all these incredible experiences. And they respond, oh, I've been there. Did you go here? And all of a sudden their story, it becomes your story, it becomes their story. Did you see this person? Did you go here? We went here. Did you go here? So it's kind of like that. There's nothing new. You think there's things new, but there's nothing really new. You look for new things to find and new things to discover, meaning, but there's nothing really new. It's all been seen before. Reminds me of when I proposed to Wendy in the uh, Christmas of 1996. And when I proposed to Wendy, I made a mistake that those of you who are considering proposals, let me give you a little advice. Write this one down. Don't show the ring to everyone else before you propose. Just a little piece of advice. At this great night, I proposed to Wendy, and then she went around to tell everyone, hey, look, we got engaged. And they looked at the ring and said, yeah, I already saw it. They could have faked it. They could, they, they could have pretended. But they didn't. So don't show the ring to other people. That didn't go over well. But you think, oh, there's something new for you to see. There's nothing new under the sun. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. The writer's saying it's, you think there's things new. You say, well, I got an iPad. That's new. There are new things under the sun. You're right. Solomon didn't have an iPad. There was no iPad back then. But what is your iPad? You write. You read. You communicate. Those things aren't new. You're just doing it in a different way. You're just doing it faster. You're just doing it a different way. It's not new. It's, got, it's made of what? Silicon. And that's been around a while. I think that's even in the periodic table. That's, that's been around a while. I mean, it's nothing new. We think there's things new, but Solomon says, now if you're looking for meaning and purpose in something new, you're not going to find it because there's nothing new under the sun. His final argument here. It's a repetitive cycle that's the illusion of progress. There's nothing new. And he finally says, there's no permanence. If you're looking for meaning in your legacy, if you're looking for meaning in what you leave behind, just take a look around you and you'll realize that there's no permanence. He says it like this in verse 11. He says, there's no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. There's an encouraging verse, right? How many of you got that on a coffee cup at home? No rem- this is a good one if you're having like an over-the-hill party, I guess. You can put this verse on a coffee cup, right? Anyone got this written on their mirror at home? Little, little, remember, just write this thing down, don't forget. There's no remembrance of men of old and even those who are yet to come. It's like, look, we don't even remember the people that are gone. No one's going to remember you. And even people who are yet to be born, they're going to be forgotten. Very encouraging. But it's reality. It's reality. Let me illustrate it. How many of you know who this person is? Any of you know her name? I don't know her name. And she's my great-grandmother. 
You know the name of your great-grandmother? Few might. I don't. I, she looks a little bit like my grandmother. She's my great-grandmother, and I don't know her name. That's my parents, my grandparents, her three generations. Three generations. People will forget your name. Three generations, your own family members won't know your name. We think we have permanence, but it's not true. We think we have this lasting legacy, but it's just not true. You don't have to look. You just have to look around you. You know the name of your great-grandmother? How about your great-great-grandmother? How about your great-great-grandmother? Great-great-great-grandmother? We don't know them. They're not remembered, even by those who are related to them. It's just this morning's paper. I don't know how many of you do this. I don't know why I do it, but I often read the obituaries. I do. I find it interesting to find out what's written about people. I find it interesting what, what family members and others write about their loved ones when they die. So this, this, is, this morning, Fran, Fran was a dedicated Elvis fan. She also loved cats and crossword puzzles. Sewing, arts and crafts in general, and cooking, her favorite pastime was spending time with family and friends. This one, I like, Wil, uh, Wilda. While she was in high school, she was employed at Woolworth's department store. Anyone remember Woolworth's? Maybe you met Wilda. She was working there in Nashua. Following her marriage, she was a homemaker for many years and later worked as a stitcher for the Robert Leonard Company, Drake at Sportswear, and other various local mills. She was a member of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. During World War II, she was employed by a local machine shop working on military equipment for the war effort. She will be remembered as a warm and friendly person who loved everyone as they loved her. She sounds like a wonderful lady. She'll be forgotten. So will you. This is Carol. She lived in Littleton for, as many, year, uh, for many years where she worked as an assembler for LMI of Acton and Telequip of Littleton. She was a member of the Littleton Garden Club and enjoyed arts and crafts and yard sales. Lillian was a federal employee at Hanscom Air Force Base in Bedford. She enjoyed playing bingo and going to movies. No guys in here. Oh, there's one guy. I always get interested. Guys are always interesting. They almost always say, was a fan of all Boston sports teams. That was the, it's the classic line that they always write. I don't know why. That's, is that maybe what you want written when they only have a few lines to write? And I know, I know what an obituary is. I understand. It's, it's not a full person's life. It's just a few lines. It's just basically information, so get out there so people can know that a person passed on. But it's a good illustration. You know, the, the things about us, what will people remember? The truth is there isn't a lot of permanence. We think there's permanence, but there isn't a lot of permanence. People will forget us. It's a big game later today that many people will watch. Many people think it's important, but how many people remember who won and lost last year? Well, you probably remember last year's Super Bowl. But how many people remember who won and lost the one five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago? Yeah, Andy does. A couple people. But minority. Less and less and less people. Those things were so important in the moment. 
Those people were so important on that day. And they get forgotten about. They'll have a couple lines in a newspaper. The teacher says, if you're looking for your legacy to bring meaning to you, you're looking in the wrong place. Because legacy is not going to bring you meaning. Because you'll be forgotten. So he pronounces his judgment like a judge pronouncing his sentence over it all in verse 14. And he says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. This chasing after the wind, the illustration, the picture of the Hebrew word is, like, is to say that it's like shepherding the wind. It's like you're trying to herd the wind. You're trying to lasso the wind. That is what life under the sun is like. It's a, it's a meaning. You can't do it. And if life under the sun is all there is, if this is all that, that, that there is, the only the things that we can see and hear and smell, and then they're gone, if this is all there is, then the teacher says it's meaningless. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll come to the same conclusion. If we're honest with ourselves and we carry out this thinking that if life under the sun is the only thing that exists and there's nothing beyond it, then we'll come to the same conclusion. How can there be purpose or meaning? But let me pivot for a moment and let me turn things in a little different direction and let me do it with a story. Let me do it with a story from church history about a man named Eutrypius. Eutrypius lived in the late uh, 4th century and he was living in, uh, in the Byzantine Empire and he was, he was very powerful. He was a very powerful man. In fact, he had risen to become the closest advisor to the emperor at the time. But he was harsh and he was, he was, um, he was evil. He was hurtful to people around him and the, and the empress at the time got tired of it. She got angered. Her name was Eudixia. And she finally raised a case against Eutrypius and she brought all the charges against him and she pronounced a sentence of death upon him and she put it out there that Eutrypius was to die and his life was to be forfeited and everything was to be taken away from him. And so the mob went to seek him out and to carry out this order and to kill him. And Eutrypius at the moment, he was looking for one place he could go for safety and he ran to the only place he thought he perhaps could be safe in Constantinople at that time. He ran to the famous church, the Hagia Sophia, and he ran to that church and he grabbed hold of the altar because he knew within the church they would not kill him. He sought sanctuary within the church and the mob on this Saturday chased him and followed him into the church and he hung on to the altar there and they would not kill him in that holy place so eventually the mob dispersed. But the mob came back the next day not just to see the fate of Eutrypius, but because it was Sunday and they would come to church anyway. So there's a larger church than normal in the Hagia Sophia because they wanted to see what would happen that day and would the pastor of that church, John Chrysostom, what would he do at that moment? What would Father John do? Would he turn him over? Would he administer justice? What would be the fate of Eutrypius? John ascended the pulpit that morning with Eutrypius groveling at the altar. 
He was up all night. I imagine his eyes would have been wide open. He would have been weeping and crying, just wondering who is going to kill him and what is going to happen to his life now that it's forfeit. And he's, he, he's, he's mumbling and praying at the altar, just pitiful shell of himself. John Chrysostom ascends the pulpit. And he gives his text for the morning. And his text for that morning came out of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. His text for the morning was meaningless, meaningless. Or vanity, vanity. All is vanity. All is meaningless. And he uses Eutrypius as an illustration that morning. And he says this man had everything. And he's lost everything. Just a couple days ago, he was one of the most powerful men in all of the empire. He was one of the most powerful men uh, that anyone could possibly know. He had everything. He had money. He had everything you could possibly want. And now he is groveling at the altar. And it is meaningless. And John Chrysostom said that morning, he said, the only hope that Eutrypius has is the only hope that we would all have. He said the only hope then would be the hope that they should offer to Eutrypius, and that being mercy. He says one day we will all find ourselves in a place that Eutrypius finds himself, with everything stripped away, with nothing left to hold on to, with everything gone. And what in that moment will be our hope? It's the same hope that Eutrypius had in that moment, that he would be shown mercy. And their hope in that moment and our hope in that moment would be that we would be shown mercy by God himself. And they walked away from that church and Eutrypius' life was spared from a sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. Why? Because if all there is is life under the sun, then it's meaningless. But if what we live is life under the sun, then all of a sudden that changes everything. That if it's not life under the sun, S-U-N, but our life is life under the sun, S-O-N, that if there is a creator outside of it all, that if there was a creator that began it all and is bringing it all to a completion, that changes everything. That if it is not just this life here that we see and hear and smell and touch, but that if something outside it and beyond it, that infuses everything that matters. Suddenly, when you want to say nothing matters, suddenly everything matters. Because if you come to the end of Ecclesiastes and you flip to chapter 12, what you're going to find is when he comes to the end of it all, he says the end of it all is this, that God will bring every deed into judgment. And so instead of saying nothing matters, the conclusion he comes to is, if there is a God who is outside of this all, who is outside, who is not just living under the sun, then everything we do matters. Because there is a God who created and expects something to be done with the creation who created you and gave you purpose and meaning and everything matters. 
And so it reverses all these three things. So no longer is life an illusion of progress, but life has a destination. Revelation chapter one says, chapter 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And God says, this is where it's going that this is not a circle, this is not a cycle, this is not the illusion of progress. History is going someplace and God is the writer of it all. That God is sovereign and there'll be a day when this chapter closes and a new one will open and God says there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and that's where we're going. There is a destination. It's not just a cycle. It's not just an illusion of progress. There is something happening and what we do matters. And the second one, that there's nothing new under the sun. We read to the scriptures and what we find that with the coming of Christ, all things are being made new. All things are being made new. See, in the creation and the fall, what came in is creation and humanity fell into sin and the fall touched and tinged and singed everything. But in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All things are being made new. Not just, not just men and women who accept Christ, but if you were here at the end of December when, when Marvin Thomas did a great job preaching that sermon on the second coming of Christ, he reminded us the creation itself is waiting to be renewed in Christ. That all things will be made new. All things will be made new. And you might say there's nothing new under the sun. But there are people who could stand up out of these chairs today and would say, I had an old life but I came in contact with Jesus Christ and I am not that old person anymore. I am a new creation. I have had a new birth. I have been changed. I am fundamentally different than I was. And I am new. And I am changed. And there are new things under the sun. Because when Jesus came, it was the entrance of the kingdom of God, not the consummation. See, people confuse that. When Jesus came into the world, he began the kingdom of God. His miracles, his signs, his healings, they weren't the permanent expression. It was just the beginning of the kingdom. But when he comes again, it will be the consummation of the kingdom of God. And all these things will then come into being fully. And there will be complete healing and made a new earth and a new heavens. And all these things are moving towards that. But it began with the cross. It began with the coming of Christ. But it didn't end there. And so all things are being made new in Christ. And finally, the third thing is this. The author would say, if it's just life under the sun, there's no permanence. But if it is life under Jesus Christ, it is an eternal permanence. It is eternal life. It is not whether someone on this earth will remember your name because they won't. They won't. No matter how hard you try. They won't. You'll be forgotten. But eternal life, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. There is an eternalness to our soul and to our life and to who we are. Man may forget your name. Women may forget your name. God won't forget your name. 
if you come to know God through the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ the Bible says that your name is written in a book that cannot be erased by any man God won't forget your name God won't forget your name no matter what you accomplish try to accomplish or fail to accomplish in this world no matter how many years you have whether they're long or short the real question is are you prepared for eternity because that's where real permanence lies. That's where real meaning lies. What's interesting to me about these three things, these three arguments, is I think many people in our world live in a state of despair, in a state of depression, because they have followed these arguments out to their logical conclusion and found them wanting. They have looked at what they've been taught in school. They have looked at what they've been told is true. And they follow it out to the logical conclusion and they say, what is the point? We're not going anywhere. See, people aren't stupid. You're smart enough. People you know are smart enough to figure it out that you can't start with no meaning and end with no meaning and assume there's meaning in the middle. It doesn't work that way. You can't start with time and circumstance and chance and have no purpose and no meaning and end with death and destruction and dust and no meaning and somehow believe that there's meaning in the middle. It doesn't work that way. If there's going to be any meaning in the middle, it had to be begun with meaning. And so when we find and we come to the Lord and we say, it's not just life under the sun, but it is life under a creator, a savior, a Lord who loves us and knows our name and, is going, and this is going someplace. See, if it's just life under the sun, S-U-N, all you're guaranteed is just a, cycle of repetitive meaningless work that guarantees people will forget you but if there's a creator that created you and he has a purpose for your life then there's work for you to do that has eternal significance for him and so this morning as we come to this communion table I think it's the perfect day to start this message and start this series because this changes everything. The author of Ecclesiastes was writing without the light and the knowledge of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that we have. This changes everything. This means that God did not leave us in our sins. This means that God did not leave us in our despair. This, God, this means God did not leave us in our hopelessness. This means that God values you and loves you. He says, I will come and give my life for you. And so we gather around this table. If you're a believer and you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then I encourage you to be reminded and encouraged by this text that you have meaning and value in Jesus Christ. But if you're not, if you're not a believer, maybe you're sitting here today and you've never, you're not a Christian, I just ask you to just consider the arguments this morning. 
Consider the arguments. Consider the reality that you try and live in, that we try and make sense of this life. Because what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, if it's just life under the sun, the most you can do, and he'll say this later in the book, is eat, drink, be merry, and enjoy the wife of your youth. That's what he says. If it's only life under the sun, that's the best you could hope for. And if God's gracious to you, maybe enjoy your work. But if there's a creator outside of it all, then you have a purpose that God has called you to, and he's waiting. He's waiting for you to respond to his offer.